This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Naima Brown, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you for having me, Cheryl. I'm super excited about this conversation because I think we've got a lot in common. I think so too. I know. <laughs> Let's get stuck in. Let's do it. Naima holds degrees in Middle Eastern studies, anthropology and religious studies. Her nonfiction has appeared in Vogue Australia, The Guardian Australia and more. She has spent over a decade working in news, current affairs and documentary. She was born and raised in Northern California before living and working in Yemen and Afghanistan and now lives in the northern rivers of New South Wales, which must be such a contrast. She lives with her husband and her dog. Naima, alongside Melissa Doyle, is the co-author of How to Age Against the Machine, an empowering guide for women aging on their own terms. We had Melissa here not long ago. Is she not gorgeous? Oh, she's so gorgeous, inside and out. Just, yeah, so yeah. lovely. So lovely. Yeah, absolutely. So this is uh, Naima's first novel. It's called The Shot. It's a roller coaster read about our obsession with beauty, the trappings of success, and the desperate, outrageous lens we will go to for love and ambition. Oh my God. And we do. And we do. Yes. <laughs> and it's all true. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, based on a true experience. <laughs> yes. Yeah, not somebody you know, somebody told you. <laughs> a, comp- a composite of lots of people and, and right. bits of myself. Yes. Okay. Well, firstly, I want to know how a girl from California ends up in Northern New South Wales. So let's start there. Well, you know, in the standard way, by way of Afghanistan, as you do. Oh, yeah. Um, We all came via (laughs) Afghanistan. Didn't we? Yes. Yeah. Um, Well, I I, uh, studied Middle Eastern studies in in university in Arabic, and I lived for a number of years in Yemen. And from Yemen, I made that phone call to my parents, you know, who had been a little worried about uh, my well-being and safety uh, in, in Yemen. And I called and said, okay, you know, good news. I think my time here has come to an end, but I'm moving to Afghanistan. So from the pot to the to the frying pan, as they say, and had an incredible year uh, living in Kabul, honored and blessed to have worked uh, with some of the bravest people who are, are still there, mm-hmm. um, you know, trying to eke out a media and communications and journalism space um, under, you know, duress is to put it lightly. Um, and whilst I was there, I met my lovely first husband and we had a, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow-esque conscious uncoupling, you know, they're like the healthiest divorce you could imagine, uh, still great mates, but I followed him to his home country of Australia. So that's how I ended up here. And that was about 11, 12 years ago now. And just kind of snuck 
up to the Northern Rivers, you know, lived and worked in Sydney for ages and um, and then just kind of slipped away during COVID and just thought I'm going to see how long I can do this until anyone notices and ropes me back in and no one has. And so, you know, I've been able to just stay up here and met my lovely current husband and adopted our gorgeous dog and I've really hammered in the tent stakes up here. So I'm here to stay. <laughs> well, you look quite comfortable. I can see that from um, your background there. Uh, yes. What was the interest in the Middle East and how unusual was it at the time for a young person like yourself uh, to have an interest in the Middle East? And how did 9-11 impact you and your work? I'm so happy you asked that, actually. It's um, well, I guess to, to start at the, at the kind of beginning um I, my name is Naima, which is an Arabic name, as you know. I do. And, yes. And um, I am named after a song. So my dad uh, spent most of my life as a uh, jazz saxophone player. And so I am named after a song. Um, any jazz fans listening might recognize John Coltrane has a song called Naima that he wrote for his first wife. Uh, beautiful ballad. And so I was always interested in language in the power of names, the meaning of names. And I was fascinated with my own name. Um, anytime that I would meet somebody uh, who spoke Arabic, I would ask them to write my name for me. And I was always just besotted and beguiled by the beauty of the Arabic language at an early age. Um, and always had a bit of a knack for Arabic. Wasn't offered in my high school. So obviously, you know, took French as you do instead. Uh, fast forward exactly as you as you um, intimated to 9-11. I was uh, 21, 22 years old. I was still a little bit rudderless. Um, you know, I didn't really jump into my academic studies uh, full throttle until kind of my mid-20s. And uh, I remember listening to NPR, our radio national in the States, and hearing the statistic that at the time there were, was a woeful lack of Arabic speakers working in government. And I never thought government was the space for me. But just that idea that there was this lack of um, people who were able to communicate on, on both sides of this, what would become the kind of gulf of my lifetime, the cultural uh, gulf, I suppose. And so... I really threw myself into Middle Eastern studies in Arabic and, um, you know, the rest is history. I, I never, um, as I said, you know, never had an interest in working for, for government. I don't think that I'm cut out for that, but found myself in the journalism storytelling space quite early on. And to my my parents, who I mentioned, you know, were sometimes worried and rightfully so about living in you know, some dangerous parts of the world or just unsteady parts of the world. I always go back to that song I'm named after and told my dad if he wanted me living in Paris, he could have named me Chloe. But you name me Naima, I'm going to follow the destiny of my name. So I yeah. love that. That's great. You could have called me Chloe because your surname is Brown. So Chloe yes. Brown would have worked as well. Yes, exactly. So what took you to Yemen? I mean, to move from the United States mm. to Yemen is a very big decision. But mm. also to, we all know this, and as you know, I'm Lebanese-Australian, there is a fear, I think, a fear for the unknown, but maybe 
after 9-11, there was a fear of Arabs. I felt it very strongly in my day-to-day life here in Sydney. Hmm. Um, every time I heard the news, I was hoping that it wasn't somebody from the Middle East that committed whatever was going on. And there was a lot of racism. There was all sorts of things. I mean, I remember being at a dinner and somebody asked me how I felt about my people murdering other people, you know, and I stood up and left. So you would have known that that was going on. You would have been, you know, very acutely aware of it. And then you make the decision to go to Yemen. Tell me about that thought. Process. First of all, I'm sorry that I'm sorry you've had the experiences that you've had, and and I, I you know, the um, it, it takes a, a longer than it should for people to cotton on to things, but I do hope it's abated for you a bit. It has, it has. Thank you. Yes, I mean, I I think I've always intuitively felt that the other, whoever the other might be, um, when you break literal and or proverbial bread with the other are not as other as we think. And I was very drawn, you know, Yemen actually kind of came around in a very um, surprising way, I suppose. I, when I was in my second year of grad school at the University of Chicago, getting my master's in Middle Eastern studies, we were encouraged to do a summer abroad language intensive. And Yemen just happened to be the country that uh, kind of popped up on uh, as available to me for that. Um, for anyone interested in, in studying Arabic overseas, Yemen, uh, unfortunately, at the moment, isn't as, as accessible now because of the conflict and war that is happening there. But at the time, it was accessible, but also very... Um, um, underutilized and undervisited and under-traveled. And so in terms of studying language, uh, you really were thrown in the deep end. It was rare to come across someone who you could speak English with. So you kind of just had to, you know, mm-hmm. try your very best and make lots of mistakes, which I did. Uh, so I moved there originally just to study Arabic in the old city of Sana'a, which is probably the most beautiful place I've ever had the good fortune of spending time in. And I ended up staying on. Um, I got a job after I graduated working with a research institution. I you know, was still very much on my kind of academic track at that point. But then I started writing for a local, the only local English language uh, newspaper and magazine. And then a few big things started happening in the news space where suddenly there was international attention on Yemen. Obviously, these were not good things, unfortunately, but I found myself segueing more and more into the journalism space. And that's really what would kind of kickstart the next 10 years of working in news and current affairs and journalism for me. I didn't go to journalism school. I, um, you know, came at it from a real, I I intersected with it, I suppose, in real time. Mm -hmm. And so what made you leave Yemen and go to Afghanistan? I was offered the opportunity. And again, for the very same reasons, just felt like who says no? Who says no Mm. to the opportunity to have these experiences? Um, That that particular gig that I had for a year in Kabul was, you know, to work in the capacity building space in the media space. So my job was to replace myself um, and try to impart as much knowledge, information, experience you know, over to my Afghan colleagues and, you know, leave them armed with new skills in in this space. And, you know, I just think it's, it's not something that the world offers often. And, and, you know, so I, I felt, 
I had no choice but to jump in and say yes. And, and it was a very different experience than, than Yemen. When I was in Yemen, um, there were low-level conflicts certainly happening in certain parts of the country, but you kind of knew where to go, where not to go. Kabul was more dangerous and felt like an active, you know, conflict zone in a real sense. And, you know, I definitely felt the stress uh, and the duress and then the guilt and shame of being able to leave when my time was up and being able to leave safely. still grapple with that now. Well, because you had to leave people behind that couldn't leave. Well, yeah, well, yes, exactly that. You know, that I, I was able to go and have this experience and, and to be enriched mm. by it and to, um, I, I suppose, not capitalize on it, but, you know, it propelled me into new spaces and to, you know, the next big thing for me. And it was just by virtue of having, you know, a, a passport from the right country and that lottery of birth that allowed me that safe passage out. And there's no easy way to kind of categorize those feelings, I think. Yeah. It's really interesting you should say that. I um, I have been the agent for a, a lovely young man, a Sudanese-Australian, Majok Tulba, and he has written some fiction. But when he first came to see me, he talked to me about having spent some time in a refugee camp. He couldn't really remember how many years he'd been moving to get here, you know, but he did know that he was in a refugee camp for some time. And he said it dawned on him one day that there were people who had passports so they could fly and there were others that didn't. Mm. And that has never left me. The randomness of it, the unjustifiable unjustness of it is yeah I, and I, I think I've stopped trying to make sense of it because it doesn't make sense no. and I just you know as as trite and overused as this word can sound I just try to not squander and to be grateful for what I have and to be aware of it every day I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on LinkedIn you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra start hiring professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So then it looks like you pivoted to fashion. <laughs> Is that right? To fashion? Yeah. Oh, I, 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 I don't know what that's a reference to, but. Oh, okay. Because you wrote some nonfiction for Vogue Australia. Oh. Oh, yes, yes. yes. I was like, you know, and that's, it's only funny that you would say pivoting to fashion, Cheryl, because yes, you know, what you're seeing of me from the waist up right now might look a little put together, but I guarantee you I'm in tracky docks and Uggs, you know. Okay, from, okay. Yeah. No, I only uh, made that uh, assumption because you're running for Vogue. Fashion. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, yes. No, I, um, look, I've always, I've always tried again. I think it's just the never say no. So, you know, with the age against the machine experience and, and ride that Mel and I have been lucky enough to, to be on, there was a beautiful opportunity to write a piece about, um, some, some of my views on aging for Vogue Australia, Um, you know, lucky enough to write a couple other fun and random pieces uh, based on different works of journalism I've been involved in. Okay. So for some reason I had it in my head that you were writing about clothes. I don't know why. I mean, look, never (laughs) say never. Maybe, maybe someday someone will ask me my opinion on clothes, but I I certainly haven't earned that. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. All right. So how did the collab come about between you and Melissa? Oh, I mean, as as do you know why I've made that assumption? Because you're both drop dead gorgeous, is why oh, I made that Cheryl. assumption. Oh my goodness, thank you. I well, look, I don't. There's some sort of filter I don't know how to turn off. Yeah. On. So I'm getting a little help from you know <laughs> tech at the moment. But um, no, you're very kind. Mel and I, our collaboration started in the way that most female collaborations do, which is lots and lots and lots of talking. Oh um, we were lucky enough to be on the road together quite a bit. I was. Uh, Mel's producer whilst Sunday night was still on the air at Channel 7 and we had a couple grand adventures out in the world together traveling telling really incredible stories and then there's all of those times in between places and um, you know we got to know each other very quickly and you know uh, transitioned from colleagues into you know besties quite naturally and then you know Mel found herself on the cusp for 50th right around the same time I found myself on the cusp of my 40th we were both kind of looking around us for some models some aspirational examples and whilst there were a few quite notable ones and are you know some some women that we certainly look to um as examples of what we want that journey to look like there certainly weren't as much as we wanted and we couldn't find the answers to some of the questions that were bubbling to the surface and so we took it upon ourselves as a kind of you know a a journalistic storytelling venture which is what we'd always done together and age against the machine was born so we did the audio series first for audible which was incredible and from that a deeper dive a more forensic dive uh, into women and aging in in the book Mm -hmm. and then you took to writing fiction Yes. Well, look, you know, it's almost as if I've been writing fiction my whole life and then took to all these other things, you know. Okay, got it. Yeah. And, well, you know, and, and, the other and way been, around. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I've always, I've always written, I've always, um, I've always played with words and language as a young child, you know, through the years when I could find the time. I've always written short fiction, had a couple pieces published here and there. But I always had this sense, and I don't know why, uh, something to dig into in therapy, you know, not with you and, and all of your <laughs> listeners, that, you know, the thing I really wanted or the thing that was the real passion must kind of stay separate or be this thing that I I water that part of the garden when I've earned it or when I've got the time. But must go over in this direction, um, you know, to pay the bills, so to speak. And so it took me longer than maybe it should have to finish 
the manuscript for the shop. That's about seven years mm-hmm. of stopping wow. and starting and, um, you know, putting it down to go do my quote unquote real job, come back, dust it off and, you know, get back to it. And then it wasn't until about two years ago that I said, no, about a year and a half ago, maybe now that I said to myself, you know, darn it, just finish this, finish this thing mm-hmm. and see what it's, what it's got. And here we are. Okay, so I want to talk to you about the process of writing fiction because mm. it is quite different, as you said, to writing a journalist piece or some nonfiction. Firstly, it's, it's 60, 70, 80,000 words, whatever the length is. And then it's the craft of putting those words into a story. So what came first for you? Was it an idea that you had or was it, I'm going to write something, what will I write about? How did it come to you? The shot certainly came to me as an idea, a concept, an obsession, in some ways, a confession first. I had, well, I had taken a brief step away from working in news and current affairs. You know, not many people have, have been through much more traumatic international postings than I have. And I, and it's important that I, I say that, but I certainly did feel a sense of fatigue, burnout from the news and current affairs cycle once I got to Australia mm-hmm. and looked over at friends of mine, friends of friends that were working in the reality television space and thought, what a lark. They seem to be having a bit of fun. It's not so serious and weighty. And I thought, I'll just take a little break and catch my breath and go have a little fun on one of those shows. So I took a very junior position uh, working on the Bachelor franchise and very quickly came to feel much more adrift in that space than I did in navigating tricky political, cultural milieus. Mm -hmm. I found myself much more out of my depth with women in ball gowns at cocktail parties competing over a man. And the dynamic between the production crew and the talent and those relationships were a lot harder for me to metabolize through my system. And quickly took root as something that I wanted to explore through fiction, Mm. the power dynamic between cast and crew in a setting that's so manufactured as reality television lends itself, opens itself to so much fictional exploration. Mm. Um, So I, I certainly started there and then started to think about how I wanted to craft it and how best to write it. Mm-hmm. I want to get back to that, but I, I just want to firstly see if you can shed some light on this. What is the appeal of reality TV? Because I will make a confession that I don't think I've ever watched anything. Well, I have managed to avoid it. Yes, and, <laughs> and, and, and probably to your, to your uh, benefit. You know, look. Mm. Why do people I- love it? I, I certainly, I, I have ideas. Um, mm-hmm. I put a lot of thought into it. I wouldn't say that I uh, have looked at it academically and could give a definitive answer. I also am someone who hasn't watched very much of it. My personal experience of working on it was enough. Um, and I, um, you know, I've come across bits and bobs here and there, but it's it's never really been, save for the occasional cooking show, I do like a good cooking competition, but other than that, it's not really been my my thing. But I don't want to shame or, you know, look upon with scorn those people who might find 
entertainment. Um, and a lot of people do. A lot of people do. Of life. The more that I've come to think about it, write about it, and sh- and try to understand it, it makes me think about the times when I was a babysitter as a, you know, 12, 13, 14 year old. And, you know, sorry to anyone who might be listening that I ever, you know, babysat your kids, but um, I was a bit of a snoop. I was, you know, very interested in other people's refrigerators, really, really invested in other people's closets, fascinated just by how other people lived, how other people organized their lives. And it makes me wonder whether that is a really hardwired human impulse to know, you know, what's going on in the cave next to you. If we've always been a bit voyeuristic, a bit curious about each other. And over time, one version of that is this thing, this beast that we have now that is reality television content. And so I think it might just light up that part of our brains that just wants to see how other people move through the world and potentially in artificial environments. And it's the, what would I do scenario as well? How would I manage that? What would I have done? Mm. Um, That I think might be a little bit of a dopamine hit, but I will also say that I've been really influenced by, and I, I couldn't recommend it more, John Ronson's book. So you've been publicly shamed. Um, he, he looks much more closely at the kind of uh, online mob and the public shaming that takes place within the social media spaces. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we might call this cancel culture, but he looks at it in a much deeper uh, way than, than that. And he, in his book, um, does a lot of very deep dive research into the origins uh, and long history we have with ritual humiliation, uh, with public shaming. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that he really comes to any sort of answer to why is this a feature of human societies, but it is one. For some reason, we do like to watch each other stumble as much as we like to watch each other win. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why that's the case. Mm-hmm. No, I don't either. But yeah. there is, and, and as I said earlier, you know, it's all walks of life, you know, mm. people, all sorts of people watch it. So going back to writing, a fiction book. You've decided you're going to do it. You decided you're game enough. The craft of sitting there and doing the work is different, isn't it? Like, how did you approach that when you decided, let's say two years ago, three years ago, this is it, I'm going to finish mm-hmm. the shot? Was it that you approached it like a nine to five job? Tell me how you kind of walked into it. Yeah. I mean, I think having been a producer for mm-hmm. the past 10, 15 years, I think I've learned how to structure my time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not somebody who struggles really with procrastination because I think, like you say, I I will set out and set aside time specifically for writing. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I think that if if you're not feeling it, if the if the gods aren't with you, best not to try. I don't know if I would call that procrastination so much as I would call it just honoring yourself and your creative flow in the moment. But barring that, I don't find it hard to get myself to my desk, so to speak, and write. Mm-hmm. I think that, and and yes, I think especially when I kind of sat down and said, right, I'm going to finish this, uh, not that seven years of, you know, fits and mm. starts. But once I sat down to really finish it, I think that this particular novel 
allowed me to draw on what kind of writing I had been doing for the last, you know, many years, uh, in, in my, in my work, which is writing scripts, um, and telling, uh, stories through script. And so I think in terms of structuring scenes, in terms of structuring dialogue and pace, I really did draw on my scripting for television, um, muscle, which was probably the strongest muscle I had at that Mm. time. And then I think, again, you know, going back to the many, many years of writing short fiction, I tried to approach it as lots of little bits of short fiction, little vignettes stitched together, and then go back and find that continuity and smooth out those transitions. So I would say that was my approach. And then certainly once I was in the publication cycle and had, um, you know, found my my publisher and my home with Macmillan and other people's brilliant minds and skills um, and experience came to bear that process. You know, I shudder to think of the manuscript before it had the guidance and the fresh eyes and the brilliant minds of, you know, line editors, copy editors, uh, the unsung heroes of the book world really. Isn't it so much so? I hear so many wonderful stories about that. And also for a lot of unpublished people, people worry about that process. They think that somebody's going to ruin their book or they're going to change the tone of their book. Or, But often authors come out of it just like in awe. Wow. Mm. And it's all these people, you know, um, editors, publishers, designers, copy editors, they just want it to be a better book. That's exactly it. I mean, I, I certainly, you know, never found myself feeling pressured or precious. Mm. Um, it w- the the sense of collaboration was so palpable at all points in the process. And exactly as you say, you know, when when someone else is bringing their talent to your work and wanting more wanting to draw more from you, wanting to really, you know, really, really make it shine and sing. Um, It's a privilege. Mm, It is. It is. Mm. So will there be another book? There will. Uh, (laughs) Yes. I I have a a second piece of fiction coming out with Macmillan sometime next year. Wow. And so, yes, watch this space. So you've Um, taken to long form writing. I think it was always kind of nestled nestled in me. And I think it really is about time, isn't it? Yeah. And I think especially as, as women, um, you know, we still are, are, um, you know, no matter how much we evolve, uh, we're still the ones doing the lion's share of so much of that unpaid domestic work as well. So sometimes it's learning to let the dishes stay dirty a little longer or the laundry pile pile up a little longer, but really putting up barbed wire around that time to let it unspool. Mm, good for you. Uh, thank you so much for your time. The book is called The Shot and congratulations. Thank you so much, Cheryl. I really loved this conversation. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. 
We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.